We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165. As well, they've got a website, andyanddon.com. You can listen to old archive shows there or ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Good morning, gentlemen. Good Hi, to see Scott. you. Hello, how are you? I'm doing very well. Let's uh, let's start off by plugging the seminar here, April 10th. April 10th, yes. It is That's coming it. up yeah. this week. Yeah. Wow. And yes, it's, it is all about strategies for a confident retirement. And there's so many, there's so much noise about what you should be doing in terms of retirement, trying mm-hmm. to create that retirement paycheck. What's the most efficient way of not only getting that income, but the, the decumulation strategy? Because we spend our whole life accumulating for this. Yeah. And how do we take it the most tax effective way so we don't get hit by a massive tax bill um, protect per, particularly for estate planning, of up to 53.5%. So we're going to go through a bunch of strategies, and I know everybody will just love how we go through this in a way that they'll they'll feel comfortable at the end and know they got something out of it. Who is this seminar targeted to? Who would this be good for? If you are approaching retirement or already retired, Mm -hmm. and maybe you're not feeling that confident, Right. Uh, and there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of, this is probably one of the biggest financial decisions you're going to face in your life as, mm. you, as you get ready to retire. And that retirement phase also too. So it, it's really, there's no age requirement, right. but it's, it's sort of, that would be the genre, I think. All right. April 10th in two yes. different seminars. It's one of those things, retirement's one of those things that's hard to practice for, right? Yeah. <laughs> you get one crack at this <laughs> and maybe I guess, like you, uh, you know, if you're married, there's two, two different people retiring, but uh, generally speaking, it's at similar times. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you want to go in there feeling well-armed and and with the most, you know, knowledge is powerful and gives you confidence. Yeah. So that's what we're going to be going over. But yes, uh, right now, um, today's uh, topic, I'm, let me talk about real estate. Mm-hmm. It, it has been a, a big topic um, in terms of, you know, owning it. Is it going down? Is it going up? Is mm-hmm. it it's still a viable option? A lot of people that, you know, it kind of likens to me to back in the late 80s when real estate was going through the roof then. Yeah. You know, I, I know myself i bought a house downtown hamilton my first house it was for sixty-five thousand. by 89 it was one hundred thirty thousand. it's amazing eh? okay everybody wanted a rental property everybody yeah. didn't matter yeah. yeah um you know every type of job everything from a golf pro was buying real estate to somebody working at ford to mm-hmm. people that bought real estate in the past but all the whole bunch of newcomers were buying real estate and that's kind of what's been going on in the last call it five to seven years here in uh, the GTA area, um, in particular, Hamilton has really boomed in the last five years. So you look at it, and what is real estate all about? First of all, is the acquisition. You buy it, you hold it, and eventually you dispose of it. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's built, really there's two sides of it. There's the land that is not depreciable, okay? It, you cannot write off any portion of the land, um, and you will either get a gain or a loss when you sell it. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have a building attached, it's simply raw land. You have to pay property taxes on it, right. uh, which is an expense. You can't write that off against income unless you are getting a rental income on the land. Right. So just holding land, is, is, unlike a building, it's far different. So a building, on the other hand, you can- So obviously it's not necessarily worthwhile just buying a, a plot of land somewhere. It's, got, it's better if it has something on it? It Yes or no. Yeah, yes or no. It all comes down to, did you buy the right location with land? Because you can see people have bought a piece of land 
and or they have a house that had 50 acres attached mm -hmm. and they severed off the 49 acres the next thing they're building a subdivision on that land it was worth millions yeah so land is could be a great way to go but it's usually a longer term game mm -hmm. um in this latest market it's been short term but we've seen land sit there and not do anything for 20 years mm -hmm. uh, but all of a sudden mm -hmm. it's it's of interest because they changed the say the um uh, the rules in terms of where they can build zoning or zoning is what yeah. i'm looking for yeah. yes so building on the other hand is de depreciable and that, therefore what you mean is you can depreciate a building if you own it a little bit each year if you want and there also will be a gain or a loss on a disposition mm -hmm. okay so the real question is is that gain considered a capital gain or is it considered income and there's a big difference between the two See, if it's added to your income, and if you're in the highest tax bracket, you, you could pay. You would pay fifty-three point five three percent tax on income. Mm -hmm. So if you're if you're selling that building down the road, and be, because of a lot of different uh, decisions you made along the way, the government deemed that to be income. Mm -hmm. Well, that gain you made is not a capital gain. It would be added to your income, which is fifty-three and a half percent. Call it versus a capital gain would be half that, 26.77%. Mm -hmm. And losses um, on, can only be applied against other income, okay? So if, you're, if you have a, it can only be applied. So if you have a loss on your, if it's an income, it's great. So if you made m lost money, you can apply it to all your other income, mm -hmm. okay? Not simply a capital gain. Where you have a capital gain, that's great. But if you have a capital loss, you can only apply a loss to other capital gains. Right. So if you've never had a capital gain in the past, you may never get to claim that loss. Mm -hmm. And if you don't own any non-registered investments other than your personal house that does not qualify, basically that money you lost, it's gone. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so we've seen a lot of clients, Andy and I, over the years that have had capital losses on different investments, and we don't know how they will ever get to claim those. Right. And that's something that you will see on your notice of assessment. When you get your notice of assessment mm -hmm. each year, uh, typically in the summary pages, they'll tell you, you know, obviously what your RSP limits are, whether they agreed with your numbers and yep. you owe or don't owe, but they'll also include uh, a, ca a carry forward amount of any capital losses that you have not yet claimed. Right. So this is sort of a, uh, it's, it's a grandfathered amount, but you have to have capital gain to be able to use it. Right. Yes. And, and again, like Andy just mentioned, it is on the nose of assessment, which is carried indefinitely. So you can just carry that on forever. But again, of no use if you never get a, a capital gain to use it against. So what determines whether it's going to be a capital gain or a capital loss? This is what's interesting. There's no set rule on this. Hmm. They go by case law. And because there's no, there's no such thing that, well, if you bought a house and you sold it within a year, then it would be income. Right. Well, there, mm. that does not exist. It comes down to the, the characterization of that uh, disposition, meaning what did you, when you bought it, what was the intent when you bought that? Right. Okay. They actually look at the intention. So if you bought it, and, and this is actually very important, and I underline this, you should document your intention when you bought that property. Mm-hmm. Your intention was to buy it for a long term. Right. You write that down, why it was for the long term. And if, there w if that intention got circumvented for some reason, mm -hmm. you write down why it did. And therefore, this was a capital gain, not income. So you look at, it's very subjective. So this is why it's interesting. This is why there's case law. You quite often, land, um, building owners 
where have a rental property will go to court trying to prove their point. Right. So taxpayers' conduct, um, they look at the feasibility of that intention. So if a, somebody says something, the government's going to look, well, okay, that doesn't make sense at all. It's not, it's not feasible. Right. Okay. And if it's not feasible, they will say it is a capital gain, uh, sorry, a, an income and not a capital gain. Um, other consideration, whether it's business income or if it was a capital gain, was it, if it was not related to your core business, okay, it's likely going to be a capital gain. So if you happen to be making, I don't know, let's say you ran a some small business, but you just happen to buy this offshoot piece of land or, or a rental property out in Muskoka. Mm-hmm. Well, that's maybe a one-off. It's, it's definitely not related to your core business, mm-hmm. and therefore it's probably going to be a capital gain. It's a rare transaction. It doesn't happen frequently. Right. If you're doing them all the time, you have a history of buying and selling real estate, yeah, it's going to be looked upon as income. The tricky part there is they can go back. The government can go back years right. and, and you will get a massive tax bill if they treat it as an income rather than the capital gain that you originally paid it on. Right. Okay. Um, if it's a long-term investment, it will be a capital gain, generally speaking. And if you got a third-party offer, so somebody you didn't know offered you money, but it was unsolicited, then it would likely be a capital gain. So if you bought this uh, building, and literally three months later, somebody out of the blue offered you a great return on your investment, right. you'd be nuts not to take it. Sure. It would still look, it would probably be considered a capital gain mm-hmm. because you didn't solicit it. Somebody came to you. You don't know the person. Mm-hmm. It just happened. I, you couldn't reserve, it was an offer you couldn't re- refuse. Refuse. So if there's an um, expropriation of the property, if there's financial difficulties, if there was health concerns, you just couldn't deal with the stress of rental property or something, um, or a forced rezoning, those are all reasons it could be a capital gain. Rather than business income, where you are actively seeking for it to sell it, you're generally holding it for shorter periods of time. And like I said, if there is a um, normal instance of you buying and selling, yeah, the government's going to say, oh, you've done this 10 times in the last four years. I, we're not going to call this a capital gain. Right. Okay. And normally, it's one of those things where you'd want to treat it as a capital gain and let the government come to you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because if you treat it like income, they will say, oh, wait a sec. I think that's a capital gain. You, you, you shouldn't pay that much income tax. Right. So you ha- you, generally speaking, you should file aggressively and let them come to you. But knowing you might get, you know, taken on a, a court case or, or right. something that they would actually say, okay, we're going to take you to court on this and or you, we're going to treat this as an income. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple ways of owning property, individually or corporate. Buying it individually under your name is really easy. First of all, that's one of the things. It, you can, sh- if it's, um, personally, you can shelter those capital gains. And if there's capital losses, those losses can be used against your own individual capital losses. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you're renting it out and you have rental losses, you get to use those rental losses against your personal tax return. Mm. Okay. Which is quite useful. Unfortunately, if there is some worry of uh, liability, you do have to have insurance, of course, but you could, you don't, you may not be protected from creditors. What would be a rental loss? Well, if, if you, you can't rent it out, uh, if you got, if mm. you got uh, less rent right. than expenses. Mm. Okay. Okay. So if you had, uh, you know, $12,000 in rent, but you had 15000 of expenses, you had mm. a $3,000 rental loss. Right. Okay. Okay. Now, in a corporation, 
it's one good thing is you can transfer from one shareholder to another quite easily. Mm -hmm. There's limited liability. So unless you have personal guarantees, if you've got personal guarantees for the financing, they can go after you personally. Okay. Um, the corporation needs to file a tax return every year, which yeah. is another expense. And it might qualify for the small business deduction, which is a great perk, but there's a lot of um, underlying qualifications to that. It's generally speaking, it does not qualify for the small business deduction. Right. So at the end of the day, there you really should look at whether you should own it individually or corporately. And we'll finish up on that just after the break. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. And don't forget about the seminar coming up April 10th. You can also book your seat there uh, by calling that number. Check out the website, too, at andyanddon.com. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now and leave a message or book your spot for their seminar coming up April 20th at 905-529-7165. And you can also check out the website at andyanddon.com, andyanddon.com. Do you want a quick overview of the seminar again? Two coming up April 10th. April 10th. 10, uh, 10 a.m. in the morning at yep. Dundurn Castle and 7 p.m. at Russell House. Strategies for a confident retirement. Don't and of course, it. you can just call and leave a message to book your spot. We're talking about real estate. Yes, and it comes down to we're looking at do we buy it in individually mm-hmm. or in a corporate. And, lo- and, a, and basically in a corporation, there's a lot of hold, holding companies now that have built up a lot of money. And they're thinking, okay, what should I do with it? Should I look as an investment? Like they are investing in different things, but leaving mm-hmm. it sitting there in a daily interest account earning, you know, quite often zero, but less than 1% doesn't make sense either. So then I think, okay, what could I get into? Maybe I can get into real estate. Well, this is where it gets a little tricky. If you bought this a real estate as a corporation, it's considered passive income mm-hmm. normally. And again, you should definitely go over this decision, either individually or corporate, with your accountant. Right. I can't stress this enough. Too many people make these decisions, then they bring the accountant in after to right. kind of clean up the mess on their tax return after, and it's like, oh boy, you shouldn't have done it that way. So definitely talk to your accountant. But if it was passive income, which most of the time it is, it would be taxed at 50.17%. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the tax rate on passive income. And that's the same as interest income within the corporation and uh, I guess... You know, capital gains and dividends are treated differently, but all passive income are taxed at a, at a high rate. Mm-hmm. There's no real deferral. There's no real advantage from a tax deferral there. If it's active, which is unlikely, because there's a lot of rules to be active business income, you'd only pay 12.5% tax if it, if it qualified for the small business deduction. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge advantage, but to be an active um, business, it has to have over five employees, so six or greater, mm-hmm. actually. And... There's a whole lot of rules, and I won't go through them all, but there's a lot of rules it to can be considered an active business in order to have r- real estate, mm-hmm. okay? So at the end of the day, generally speaking, it is better to own the real estate individually. I know if Andy and I were talking off air about, you know, somebody using it to buy a, a cottage in Muskoka, mm-hmm. and I'm sure there's some personal use rules there. Yeah that they would have to have a taxable benefit to use their own place yeah. because the corporation owns it and you're the shareholder. Mm-hmm. So very similar to a car, when you own a car, then there'd be some personal use and that adds a taxable benefit to yourself. Right. Often does not make sense. Now, the big one of the bigger decisions we have when owning real estate 
is do you own it jointly or tenancy in common? So the joint tenancy or tenancy in common, this is one of the areas that I, I would like to see listeners check out more often, particularly if they were dealing with a business partner for a rental property or, or a second marriage. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is a little more common and yet I find a lot of people aren't looking at this. So basically the ownership in joint tenancy is equal and identical, meaning it's 50-50. Yeah. Okay, so if you own a property, it's 50-50. Nice thing about tenancy in common, it could be unequal. You could have two-thirds, one-third, or, or three-quarters, one-quarter. Or you can own it with a number of people yeah. in all different percentages because you put that in the writing, in, in writing there. Um, t- as far as survivor, it automatically goes to the other owner mm-hmm. in survivor in case of a death. Nice thing about tenancy in common, it does not go. It goes according to your will right. and to your estate. Um, is it an estate asset? It is not an estate asset. Um, for joint tenancy, but it is a, a state asset in tenancy in common, meaning it go, will go through your will. And probate, nice thing about joint tenancy, it does not go through probate. Mm-hmm. It automatically goes to the joint owner. That's a good thing, but not if you didn't want it to go to that person, <laughs> okay? Mm-hmm. So tenancy in common, it, it has to go through probate. So double check to see if that's the right, right way for you. And and if you are looking at going in business, business with somebody, you're bringing in two thirds of the money and they're bringing in one third, make sure it, it shows that it's tenancy in common. And then one of the questions I often get asked, should I claim Canada um, CCA, um, ca- corporate capital cost allowance or not? And you can depreciate buildings, as I said earlier, up to 10%, okay, so there's different classes. Parking lots and sidewalks, 8%, signage, 20%, and land, like I said earlier. That sidewalk gets beaten up (laughs) (laughs) every day. Someone's got to shovel it. That's right. 8% a year, you can depreciate that. And should you do that or not? It's kind of interesting. If it's a appreciating, all that money you depreciate. So let's say you bought a property for 500,000 and you depreciated it by $100,000. Okay, so you got these write-offs every year, mm-hmm. which is great while you're getting them. But then when you sold it, and let's say you sold it for 600000 which has been kind of the norm right now, it goes up in value, you would have to recapture the $100,000 in one tax year, meaning $100,000 would be added to your income in one year. Mm. And that's not a capital gain. That is not a capital gain. That's just income. Yeah. Plus, you would have the capital gain of the 100000 profit it made, okay, which is you'd pay tax on 50000 of that. Mm. So that could put you in quite the high tax bracket, far worse than the, the benefits you got when you wrote it off. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're saying, okay, well, actually the, the building is depreciating, then you could say, okay, it makes sense to depreciate this, uh, this building. In fact, let's say you sold that building for 300,000. You bought it for 500,000, you depreciate by 100, but it still only got sold for 300,000. You'd actually get a terminal loss of 100,000. And that 100,000 terminal loss is used on that year's tax return. Mm-hmm. So it's actually an advantage if it is a depreciating asset. So those are the kind of the two ends. And then there's the one where let's say you sold it for 450, you would not have a capital gain because it, de- it went down by 50,000, yeah. but you did write off 100,000. So then you would get recapture of half of that back. So you'd have to recapture 50,000 added to your income. So it's kind of tricky you really should be talking to your accountant or your financial planner 
looking at the kind of the building you have is is it a, a good area and you find it's going up in value definitely do not use a um, depreciation if you think it may go down you may want to depreciate it because if you do depreciate it it does allow you to get a terminal loss uh-huh. and that's important and finally last thing i want to talk about is a lot of people are getting in these rental properties and they always ask me can i write that off as a, an expense that year or is it a capital improvement so what the difference is is when you sell it so a capital improvement let's say you added a roof to your place Okay, and it cost ten thousand dollars. Well, that's a capital improvement. You didn't get to write off that roof that year, okay? Because it was a a big a big addition to the house, or a big uh, say a uh, a deck was added, something that wasn't there. That would be a capital improvement, and you don't get to write that off, but it would add to the original value that you purchased. So if you purchased it for five hundred thousand, you added fifty thousand dollars of capital improvements. Your now adjusted cost base is five hundred fifty thousand. So if you sold it for 600,000, you only had a capital gain of 50,000, not 100,000 from the original price. Right. Not really great on every every year's tax return. Repairs on the other hand, you get to write that off every year on your against your income. So this is a repair is something that recurs on a normal basis. It's a wear and tear item. So let's say carpets. Right. Okay, you got to replace those carpets every, I don't right. know, 5 years or so often. It's added to an existing asset. So if you had a, say, a dock, and it was rented, you know, you're renting it out. What and about you, a dock, Don? Yes, and you simply increase the size of the dock. Right. Okay, that would be looked upon as a repair. Right. Okay, but if you added a whole new dock, right. well, that would be a capital improvement. That wasn't there before. That wasn't there before, right. 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 Um, costs incurring are, are just part of doing business, okay? Yeah. And... Those would also be considered repairs. And quite often it's a repair that would have been made anyway. It just happens that it got sold right after. Right. So if there was something that was pressing and you happen to just repair it and then, and then you sold it, mm-hmm. well, that would be used as income. But if you had to get your place up to snuff to sell it, yeah, that's different. That's a capital improvement. Mm. So again, have a, a little discussion with your accountant. These are, it's far better to have these discussions beforehand. Yeah. Before you're looking at selling, saying, I'm going to go two years out and what should I do as far as my property? Should I do this or this or this? And can I write it off in the year or do I have to use it as a capital improvement? And th- they will be able to help you immensely. Mm-hmm. So I'm just giving you some examples, but it's nice to be armed with the right questions to ask. And on that note, I know Andy's got a little bit of insurance to talk about here. Yeah, that was not great information on in terms of real estate and what, I mean, the market and everybody's say is sort of into this right now. And uh, so it's certainly a good advice. And I, it's, you were, we were talking about the 53 and a half percent tax bracket um, earlier on in the yes. discussion. And uh, I was ta- speaking with a, uh, a longtime client and a longtime listener who I'm sure is listening right now. <laughs> and he said, I, you know, I was asking somebody about that 53.5% estate tax. And they said, there's no estate tax in, in Ontario, in Canada. And I said, ah, you're right. It's true. There is no estate tax. And so I just wanted to clarify for people, when we're referring to estate tax, we're talking about the amount of income tax that your estate has to pay. Right. So so let's just back up for a second and we'll run through it again. On the first 200, let's, so let's say an example, you've got 500,000 in RRSPs mm-hmm. and you die. 
The first 220000 is going to be taxed as part of your estate income at the graduated rates that exist for everybody. And on that two, first $220,000 in Ontario, your estate would pay about $80,000 of income tax. So that works out to about 36% as an average, 36%. On the amount on the next dollar, 2001, and all the way up to that 500000 so on the next $280,000, yeah. your estate will pay income tax at the rate of 53.5%. So that's going to work out to $150,000 of tax on that next two hundred and eighty. Right. Now, then for a lot of people on top of that, not only they have their RSPs or RIFs, but they also would have um, capital gains that would have to be triggered. It might be, as Don was talking about, a piece of real estate that has to be sold. Not your principal residence, mm-hmm. but it could be a cottage, it could be an investment property. Uh, or it's actually just <coughs> deemed to be sold, even if they didn't Sorry, sell yeah, it. it's deemed to be sold. Technically, right. on, yeah. as, at midnight the day you die, the right. day before you die, it was sold. And there would be a capital gain on that, which would be, again, half of it added to your income right. for your estate and your estate t- income tax for the estate would be paid on that at 53 and a half percent. So if you just take that example where somebody had $500,000 of RIF or RSP money, they die the first 220, uh, $80,000 of tax in Ontario, 36%, the next 280,000, 53 and a half percent, 150,000, a total of $230,000 of tax that will be paid. Uh, and that works out to an average estate tax, estate income tax of 46%. Mm-hmm. Right? So we're talking about the marginal tax bracket, the amount you pay on that, on the top amount, right. and then the average amount. <clears throat> and the reason it feels like an estate tax in quote, quotation marks here is that you would never have paid that had you not have died. Right. right. Okay, you would have kept dragging along your RSP withdrawals or your RIF withdrawals. You wouldn't have sold the real estate on that year. It just happens in the year of death. All this got crystallized, so it feels like an estate tax. It's income tax paid by your estate. Right. Correct. In in the year of death. So just to clarify, that's when we, and when we do our tax planning for clients around estate planning, uh, you know, we're often dealing with, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars that are getting taxed at this 53.5% rate. And the, the shock on people's faces hmm. when you start to run through those numbers. And so, the, of course, the first question that pops into, as the client asked me, uh, well, what do I do? Yeah. And I said, well, the first thing you have to do is live long enough. Save me, Andy. <laughs> yeah. First thing you have to do is live long enough. And I said, you know, if you, if you can... If you took out $50,000 a year over the next 10 years, then you've taken 500000 out of your RSPs yeah. at a much lower tax rate. Yeah. And so both that, live long enough is even better. Yeah. If you're, if you're in a relationship, then you can pass that on t- and stretch it out over the two lives. So the, the key to that uh, issue is obviously longevity. Uh, but we're always, you know, we're not very good judges as to how long we're going to live. Yeah. So it becomes a motivating factor because people don't want to see that much money lost because they realize that uh, that's money that could be going to their beneficiaries. Mm-hmm. But instead, right now, it's going to federal taxes, yeah. federal and provincial taxes. So given the choice between giving your money to federal provincial taxes yeah. to do with or your beneficiaries to do with, even charity, yeah. uh, people are often leaning the other way, right? <clears throat> but our government's relying on us to be pretty, I guess, passive about this, and there's probably going to be a yeah. lot of money generated in oh, the future. Yes. Um, so uh, one of the things that we... 
we don't talk a lot about on the show is insurance. And insurance is one of those subjects where people kind of start to uh, already somebody's go, okay, honey, what else do you want right. to do now? Oh, you can just hear <laughs> time, to go. time for another coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go have a washroom break. <laughs> but um, when you think about insurance, there, there are so many different uh, types of insurance that we can look at. And of course, if I was just sort of to name off a bunch of them and you were thinking about, well, what, what would be the most appropriate insurance for me? You think about, uh, you know, it could be uh, obviously life insurance, disability insurance, critical illness insurance, children's insurance, long-term care insurance, and then there's permanent life insurance. And then there's uh, even things like... um, uh, office overhead for business professionals, etc. On and on it goes. And we so could you, literally do a year's <laughs> worth of shows on on each one on of those. All those there, yes. <laughs> People would stop listening to us, but <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> Be a lot of coffee consumed. <laughs> but when you think about just that list, Scott, what would be? What do you think is the most important piece of life insurance? Well, or I should. I say would that. just say life insurance. I know. You hit it. Where you took I know. Idea. I shouldn't have said that. Most uh, piece of, and that's because so it's you got the caught one, up in your. Own I know. Opinion. I know. Yes. That's because it's the one that we're most familiar with, mm-hmm. and it's actually the most cost effective when you mm-hmm. think about term insurance uh, and but here's the interesting statistic on term insurance of all the term insurance term 10 and term 20 so these are the most popular ones what percentage of policies do you think and this is North America what percentage of policies actually pay out a death benefit on a term 10 or term 20 insurance policy I would say very few Okay. What would you guess? Um, fifteen uh, percent. Less than one percent. There you go. Less than one yeah. percent. And so there's lots of money to be made in insurance. You, you look. <laughs> term insurance has built ivory towers yeah. for insurance companies all across the world. Yeah. It is the most lucrative piece of insurance you can get, and it's the one that we think about and go to the most. But I want to come back and talk about, I think, what is the most important one, and that's disability insurance. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can now, uh, you can uh, call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. And don't forget to book your spot for their seminars coming up April 10th. And as well, you can check out the website at andyanddon.com. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG. IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. Also book a spot for their seminar coming up April 10th at that number. And you can check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. Talking about insurance. Talk about all the different types of insurance. And one of the key things that I think about is disability insurance. And, you know, the odds... And again, we can throw a lot of statistics at people and it tends to get boring and I know you get glazed over. One of the, one of the fun little exercises you could do right now uh, when you get, when you stop listening to us is you can go to your computer and uh, Google Manulife, what's your risk? What's your risk? And basically what'll pop up is just a little quick questionnaire where you can plug in your age, gender, smoking status, and they'll give you a statistical likelihood of your insurance, an insurance uh, issue. Like mm-hmm. it could be, are you going to die before age 65? Will you have a critical illness before age 65? So critical illness means you've been diagnosed with can- heart attack, cancer, or stroke are the main right. ones. And then the, or the third one would be a disability before age 65. So 
and I sort of looked at two different categories. I looked at you know a male age thirty five non-smoker. What are what are the uh, what's the likelihood or what is his risk? And I looked at a couple age fifty, uh, both non-smokers, and what are their risks? So when I look at um, at dying, so this is the male age thirty five non-smoker. The risk of dying or likelihood of dying before age sixty five is six percent. Six percent. The risk of having a critical illness before age 65, cancer, stroke, heart attack, is 26%, so almost one in four. And finally, uh, for a disability before age 65 is 34%. Wow. One in three. Wow. So we tend to focus in on the life insurance, yeah. right, which, uh, which is only a 6% chance and then we tend to ignore disability insurance. One of the reasons we ignore disability insurance is because of the cost. Why is it more expensive? Because there's a 34% chance yeah, it's going to exactly, happen. Yeah. <laughs> Our greater <laughs> they, chance. They pay out a lot more. One in 20 versus one in three. Exactly. Yeah. And so the payout has actually increased. And, uh, and one of those is because we're now more aware of and reporting, I think, is more accurate in terms of mental illness. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times disability insurance will be uh, impacted, obviously, by you know, physical or health, uh, health right. thing, but also mental illness mm-hmm. is becoming a major component of this as well. And um, so now we flip over to a couple in their 50s, and their um, uh, likelihood of one of them dying before age 65, slightly different, only 7, 7%. It goes from 6 to 7%, so mm-hmm. hardly anything. The, uh, having a, one of them having a critical illness before 65 is 35%. So now one in three chance that one of them will have a, a heart attack, stroke, or cancer before 65. And the big one, disability, one of them having a disability before age 65, 46%. Hmm. 46%. Wow. So almost half of them are going to have a disability which would last at least sort of 90 days. Mm-hmm. And so there's a significant risk to this. And if you, one of the analogies is a lot of different ones, but if you visualize yourself, you know, you're, you're like an ATM machine, mm-hmm. right? You're, you're spitting out income on a monthly basis. And just imagine that machine yeah. turning out thousand dollar bills every month as your income flows in. And yet if you completely ignored that that machine could break down and you just let it do its thing and suddenly it stopped working, how would you be, how would you feel? So in advance of that, if I suggested to you, would it be worthwhile having a service contract Mm -hmm. in place that made sure that that machine is going to continue to work and spit out income for you? It's obvious that what disability insurance does is it, it's like that service contract for you, that machine, keeping your machine running. Mm. It keeps that income your coming. War- your warranty. It's your warranty <laughs> until you can get back online again and you're, and you're back to work again. And so disability is usually a percentage. I think of it as a percentage of your income. And another analogy that's often used is would you like to have job, if you had a choice between job A and job B, where job A, you make let's say $100,000 a year, and but you have no protection at all. Mm-hmm. You're at risk from a disability or a critical illness, et cetera. And job B, you make $97,000 a year, but you're completely covered, and that income would continue for the rest of your life no matter what, wow. until your working life, till yeah, age 65. Yeah. And that's typically sort of the range that disability insurance would cover. It's around 3% of your income. 
And it could be as low as 1%, uh, 3%, or depending on the type of policy you have, it could be a little bit more too. But it's it's really a not a large amount no. of income that you're going to set aside. And that so if you were spending $3,000 a year, 250 a month on a disability insurance policy, you probably would be getting around 55, you know, on $100,000 income, you're probably getting about 5,500 a month. Mm-hmm. And that would be tax-free income if you are disabled. It only takes one month of disability yeah. and your whole year's premiums yeah, are recovered, right. yeah. returned to you. If you went for six months with a disability, that's going to be six year, over seven, like seven or eight years worth of premiums yeah. that have now come back to you tax-free. And I know a lot of times people that you can even write off that $3,000, but that's a double-edged sword because if you if you deduct the premiums as part of a business expense, then the income you receive would be taxable. Um, so depending on the life stage that you're at, the priorities around insurance are going to shift. And we sort of have that early stage, uh, career starter, young family, the midlife, uh, where, you know, two adults working, kids are still, uh, at home. Then we've got the, uh, pre-retirees that are, the kids are leaving home, and then finally the retiree stage. And I want to talk a little bit about what retirees might want to consider in terms of insurance when we come back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. You can listen to old shows there and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. Same number to book a, a, a spot in their upcoming seminars on April 10th. As well, you can also check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. Talking about long-term insurance. Long-term care insurance. And this is, uh, as you hit into the retirement stage, um, your your needs for disability insurance disappear. You've stopped working. Yep. Um, you may still want critical illness insurance, but most likely for those that are retirees with um, with a spouse, uh, you're going to be looking at either permanent insurance as a solution, and this could be a way to um, build up and, and enhance your estate. And the one thing about permanent insurance, and I'll come back to the long-term care insurance in a second, is that whole life insurance is an interesting investment component to your retirement assets. It's an interesting investment component because it's considered a fixed income investment, meaning that it's a lower, it's a low-risk investment. It has stability and security associated with it. And generally today, most uh, whole life insurance policies are paying on average about 3% in that range. Mm -hmm. And because there's no tax attracted to that within the policy, it's like earning about 5% on on a GIC. So you can't get a 5% GIC. You can't even get a, you can barely get a 3% GIC today. So it can be a very effective way to create a stable, uh, you know, a level piece of your retirement assets right. in terms of investments. And then you can draw an income from it. But the other thing, which is long-term care, is is a way to sort of free up your uh, the capacity to spend your money because you know there's going to be a replacement income in case you need it. And typically, when it comes to long-term care insurance, it's a um, it's basically a type of benefit that if you cannot perform 
two of the six activities of daily living, and you will qualify for a tax-free weekly benefit. You will decide at the beginning when you purchase the policy how much that weekly benefit's going to be. The minimum is $250 a week. The maximum that you can buy is $2,300 a week. So roughly about, what's that, about 10 grand a month uh, on average. And so, um, you, and then you can elect the time period. How long am I going to get that for? Am I going to get that weekly for five years, 10 years, uh, indefinitely or unlimited? And um, the six activities of daily living are bathing, dressing, eating, toileting, transferring, and maintaining continence. So if you can't perform two of those without substantial assistance from another person, then, um, then you would qualify. Okay. And, and the, um, the other would be a cognitive impairment. So if you are suffering from dementia or Alzheimer's and they get into, uh, what's called a memory test for that, then you would be able to qualify under that category. So long-term care insurance is again, one of these (laughs) high payout, uh, types of policies. And I can tell you over the last decade, the, the type of policy that you could buy 10 years ago was much more lucrative, much more cost effective, and much less um, restrictive in terms of the definitions. Right. <clears throat> it still doesn't mean it isn't a good thing to have today. It just means it was better 10 years ago. Right, so right. it's, it, 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 and I think we're on this trajectory where this type of insurance is going to get tighter and tighter in terms of how much you can get, right. what it's going to cost, and the type of uh, uh, benefits you can receive. Mm-hmm. So it's something to think about now. Who's in the sweet spot? If you are between 45 and 65, I would say that's the best sweet spot. Mm-hmm. You can purchase it beyond, uh, you know, up to about age 80, I would say, but it becomes very expensive. So um, talking to somebody about long-term care insurance, get yourself a quote. I think it's a fantastic way to offset. And you can think about the last five years of your retirement. And typically today, a lot of people will think about selling their home, and then they'll take that money and they'll invest it and right. then they'll draw an income from it to pay for their retirement residence. Sure. And in a recent conversation with a client, you know, they were, they were complaining that it costs too much to be in these places and having a retirement home. And they said, you know, what? I should just move to a different place. And I said, why don't you just stay where you are because you can afford to do it. But if your health changes and you need help, then move to a cheaper place and take the savings to help pay for your care. And what long-term care insurance would do is allow the person to stay in place where they are and provide that extra income stream for them without having to impact their savings. But most parents want to hand off or pass down yeah. the value of their home to yeah. their to their kids. Mm-hmm. And they get very anxious about seeing it dwindling away as the cost for their care continues. Mm-hmm. And so whether if you're... Uh, Uh, an adult child listening to this with a parent who's in aging or you're an aging retiree, long-term care is a great way, long-term care insurance is a great way to protect your estate and the value of your estate that you transfer to the next generation. (laughs) Did you want to add to that? Oh yeah. And and also thing with long-term care insurance, it can also be looked upon as another form of disability coverage. Right. So I I have known people um, who have just simply broken arm skating mm-hmm. to the point that they couldn't do two of those items that Andy just mentioned. Mm. And so now they qualified for the long-term care insurance, 
where they may have actually struggled to qualify for disability coverage. Wow, yeah. So it's it's actually a very cut and dry formula for mm-hmm. long-term care insurance rather than sometimes it's a little more difficult to qualify under the disability. And that's a really good point because it's not just about being at end of life and dealing with you know long-term care. It's also dealing with t- today while you're still active but can't perform those activities. Let's plug the seminar. Absolutely. April 10th at Dundurn Castle. Now, I personally have not been at Dundurn Castle, even though I live quite close to it. Mm. And so I'm looking You've been by it a lot of times. Uh, that's I, right. I, yeah, yeah, I ride my bike past it and I drive past it every day, but I've always wanted to go there, so I will be going there April the 10th uh, at uh, 10 o'clock. You know it's haunted. we're going to find out we're going to find out we've uh, haunted with a lot of great financial planning information absolutely and we'll scare scare you with some information (laughs) seven o'clock at the russo house in ancaster again on april the 10th so if you would like to reserve your spot you can call them 905-529-7165 or check out the website at andyanddon.com. we have been planning your financial future i'm scott thompson andy lister and don fox have been here from ig private wealth management thank you gentlemen have a great week thanks, thanks scott. scott canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime history and the paranormal Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.